You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 25th of September 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. In less than two years, my administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. America's so true. (laughs) Didn't expect that reaction, but that's okay. Tough crowd. Donald Trump fails to elicit an awestruck hush from the UN General Assembly. My guests Robert Fox and Quentin Peel will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Brexit. Six months out, it'd be nice if someone told us what was going to happen. US Attorney General Jeff Sessions plans to return to his boss's good books by taking on the tech giants. And as goes Versace, goes the family firm. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Robert Fox, the Evening Standards Defence Correspondent, and Quentin Peel, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and contributor at the Financial Times. Welcome both to the show. And we start in New York City, where US President Donald Trump has been addressing the UN General Assembly. His oration was, as was always to be expected, largely an encomium to the accomplishments of the Donald Trump administration, leavened with intermittent swipes and threats against the enemy of the hour. Last year, when the US US appeared on the verge, rather, of war with East Asia. North Korea filled this role. This year, with Eurasia apparently back on the dartboard, it was the turn of Iran, which Trump accused, not entirely unreasonably in fairness, of sowing chaos, death and destruction across the Middle East. Um, Quentin, first of all, um, Donald Trump and the UN, it is a a curious relationship, uh, and it's a curious relationship between the UN and the Republican Party in recent years. How seriously do you think he takes the UN? I think he dislikes the UN intensely and everything it stands for. (laughs) And so the entire sort of, if you like, the theme of his speech, if theme there could be spotted, um, was national patriotism against global global government. And national patriotism is what we're all about. And then he, he actually, what he managed to do trifle more subtly than usual was in saying America first, America first, he also tried to say to everybody else in the room, and you all too, I respect you when you are proud of your national identity, but it's global governments that I really don't buy into. I mean, this, to the extent that he has any coherent uh, foreign policy philosophy, Robert, has always been the thing, the idea of a a world driven by nations pursuing uh, their own self-interest and and I guess competition, uh, as Trump sees it, I guess, the, the, the competition encouraging uh, innovation and enterprise and success and profit and so forth. Um, we played at the top of the show a, a clip of the reaction to one part of his speech. Is Was that significant, do you think? Is Trump sort of being reminded uh, unmistakably that many of his fellow world leaders take him other than seriously? I think that was pretty clear from the body language. They did, you did have wide shots of the audience, and it was very interesting. He seemed at the end, as he went off the podium and uh, was going back through the side doors, that he was largely talking to his family. And um, uh, no, I, I absolutely take your point. It's mutual dislike. 
Uh, there was the usual bully boy threats. I'm going to cut uh, American funding for peacekeeping. But there were witch words. There were witch and switch word. Press the button. He did actually mention the dread M word, the Monroe Doctrine, which look where it got America. Open doors. It, you know, I thought we were going to have a few arias from Madame Butterfly <laughs> at that point. And that was the thing, I think, that strikes so many of the more sophisticated. And I wonder if President Rouhani was sitting somewhere in the wings. We know he's going to address the General Assembly. It's, it's a malapropism. It's a malapropism of history and the uh, geopolitical playbook, because I take Quentin's point, but I wrote the, question, the, the quote down. We are for patriotic realism and we're against globalism. I mean, what on earth, in real terms, does that mean? He said, we don't believe in allies really too much, but we'd like our friends to be all right. We believe in peace in Syria, but we're going to kick the backside off Iran. Um, the two are contradictory. You ne- you're going to need Ira- I- 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 Iran. He was talking about, he was trying to be also cool about and coy about Russia. This is a man who really doesn't like being out of the playpen and in an international <laughs> forum, and he's got other things uh, to do at home. And I, I don't think it would have had much effect except this rather cruel cutting the money, cutting the money, because um, and uh, with the International Criminal Court defends criminals and so on. I think it's water off a duck's back for most of the, most of the grown-ups in that room. I think, I mean, that... T- Almost total lack of mention of Russia was fascinating. There was one mention, and that was to clobber the other country that, of course, he doesn't like very much, which is Germany, and accuse Germany of actually laying itself open to be totally dependent on the Russians for its energy supplies. Um, he has his, okay, his current uh, sort of, um, uh, the, the, the enemies, which are Iran and indeed Venezuela, those two he really singled out for clobbering, OPEC a bit too, uh, and then the ones he praised of course, which were Poland, uh, Poland for example. Um, uh, clearly a, a, a sort of newfound best friend. Maybe this presages that uh, he will do what the Poles want and set up an American base in Poland. Now, this sounds very grand. When Quentin and I were getting out of short trousers, Jean Genet, the playwright, was really the bad boy, very well established, very well known by that. He wrote a wonderful play called Le Balcon, which absolutely parodied Trump uh, more than half a century before he did that. And in the end, the Trump figure stands on the balcony and says, I proclaim to you, my people of this nation, this, this national nation. And Trump, in the last five minutes, was totally defeated by vocabulary. That also would not have been missed by the serious people in the room. Uh, Quentin, on the subject of uh, President Rouhani, um, Donald Trump tweeted today, and I am quoting this, and this was one I did check several times to make sure someone else hadn't made it up. Uh, He said, despite requests, I have no plans to meet Iranian President Hassan Rouhani. Maybe someday in the future, I am sure he is an absolutely lovely man. Exclamation mark. Um... I don't really know where where to go with that. There, there, it's one of those times where I do wonder if Trump is actually being intentionally funny, in which case that is, that's kind of amusing. But there again, he rarely demonstrates any sense of humour at all. It is extraordinary. I mean, he's just accused in his speech um, uh, Iran of being corrupt, brutal... Stealing from its people. Yes, absolutely. I, 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 again, none of which is entirely unreasonable. Well, but he, he seemed obsessed by that. And this is after he's actually praised his friends in the Gulf Cooperation Council and Saudi Arabia and so on, um, where, you know, hey, corruption, it's not unheard of either. 
So it's a, he, he just seems very erratic. He had Bolton with him. I didn't see that he had the Secretary of State, or no, he wouldn't have the Defence Secretary there, but he's flavour of the month. There's a lot of Bolton and Boltonism oh. in this speech. Bolton, of course, Bol- being former UN ambassador. Well, well if, why if no, wouldn't Bolton if, have told him about Mr Zarif and Mr Rouhani, with whom he would have had to have dealt with the former on a daily basis in the UN? This is where there is something duplicitously childish about this But John Bolton is obsessed by Iran as I mean, well. Absolutely and agreed, I'm sure John Bolton agreed. probably drafted the entire speech. Yeah. Yes, very likely. Well, let's move on now and look if we can stand to at Brexit. This is due to formally occur six months from this Saturday, and still nobody has much in the way of any idea of what they want it to look like. Least of all the UK's opposition Labour Party, who in the course of conducting their ongoing annual conference have managed to unveil several Brexit policies, all of them contradictory, none of them comprehensible. None of which will be reassuring British business. Here as everywhere, a sector which dislikes uncertainty, and here as nowhere else, a sector presently confronted by nothing else. Um, Quentin, I'm going to put you on the spot to this one. Can you explain, in in words of one syllable, what the Labour Party's position on Brexit actually is? Uh, Trying to have uh, all things to itself so that it will be able to blame the government for the disastrous Brexit deal that emerges, and then Labour can stand back and say, "Well, well, we didn't do that, so one way or another, we're the next government. Now, uh, it's it's not clear. They want an election, which they can't force because it's really in the powers of the Conservative government whether they actually go to the country again or not. And they would be insane to because they would find that very... So the second position is, are they in favour of a new referendum, effectively? And this splits the party right down the middle. What was very interesting... Well, though, it doesn't really split the party right down the middle as so much as split the party from its leadership. Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, in fact, we reckon that about 76% of the party is in favour of another referendum and 80% actually would vote to remain. Um, They were told yesterday by their deputy leader, ah, the choice of voting to remain won't be on any referendum we would back. And then Keir Starmer, their Brexit man, actually said today, remain will be a choice out there. And he got a spontaneous standing ovation. Quite extraordinary. (laughs) Uh, I, I did want to ask about that, Robert. That speech today by Sir Keir Starmer, the, the shadow Brexit secretary, he did suggest that remaining in the EU was still an option. Was was he going off-pissed there, do we think? No, no, he's been preparing the ground. And actually, it's a correction, I think, with... Quentin, I don't mean to be, to be cute about this. Tom Watson, who's a bit of a maverick, the deputy, is in favour. Yeah. But it's McCluskey and the old dinosaur, really heavyweight trade unionist. And John McDonnell. And John McDonnell, who, who don't want um, uh, stay in because they're in status quo ante um, where we are, were when we were all at school, when we were faithful trots. Uh, it's, a, it's all a capitalist conspiracy and don't go near it. I do think it's been a very, very good day for Sir Keir Starmer. Remember, he was the chief public prosecutor. He was head of the Crown Prosecution Service. And he's shown his forensic skill in this because what he has been digging away at is to create such ambiguity about this, such doubt that they that he, they will launch from the gallery somewhere in the House of Commons or the House of Lords when the deal goes there, a great big 16-tonne wrecking ball. 
So they vote down the measure. And what they're hoping then, as Quentin absolutely got right, that it's been going now for several weeks, that they'll go to a general election. It's going to take a hell of a lot to bring it to that. But Mrs May is not winning. She is not convincing even her own cabinet. She's got to convince her government her House of Commons and her party. And it's not going anywhere because from what, you, what was being said today, what I put on the table at, 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 uh, at Salzburg, which is the so-called checkers option, which is splitting the whole concept uh, uh, of, of the single market, is all I've got. And it's no use trying to divide and rule with, with um, the, the commission. The commission itself, Mr. Barnier, the Council of Ministers, all say, no, it just doesn't work. So the sense of impasse is absolutely terrific. What do I think is going to happen? They're going to have to delay uh, for six months. And if Mrs. May goes on like this and she doesn't look terribly well, I think we, there will have to be some kind of national coalition on this because it's getting so serious because I think that the markets could be saying some very funny things by March. Uh, Yeah, one can only wonder at the conversations being had between uh, business and the government at the moment. To return to the Labour Party though, Quentin, why do you think it is or how do you explain the the cognitive dissonance which still grips uh, the fan club of Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, which doesn't appear to be uh, wilting at all in its fervour, despite the, the evidence which is mountainous, uh, as soon as you care to look for it, that he is a, a lifelong Eurosceptic lever. It is, it is extraordinary. You will have seen the T-shirts all over the place. Love Corbyn, hate Brexit. And the trouble is that Jeremy Corbyn rather likes Brexit. So it's quite clearly trying to have it both ways. I do think that what Jeremy Corbyn represents to this younger generation is um, he's just different. and He's not on message. Well, he's on a different message. Um, and they've got fed up, I think, with everybody being a bit too smart. Smooth. And the thing about Jeremy Corbyn is he isn't very smooth, and but he's not very much of a leader either, and that's their problem. But he's 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 not without a politician's ability or willingness to dissemble. He has been grilled again today for hosting chat shows for Press TV, the Iranian state propaganda outlet by Jon Snow of Channel 4. Uh, he refused several times to answer the question in any meaningful way, and indeed, I, I suspect uh, he's, he's fibbing a bit about the timeline of his involvement with Press TV as well. I, I I think that the thing about Jeremy Corbyn is he's still basically obsessed by the same agenda that he was obsessed with in the 1960s. He's never actually shifted. And it's things like, you know, pro-Cuba, anti-apartheid, pro-Nicaragua, or whatever. All of these good old foreign issues, um, which actually not terribly relevant today um, but nonetheless he smells different to this younger generation But that younger generation Robert are the ones who are most ardent Remainers. Do you, do you think there is going to come a point at which there is a realising or is he going to be able to because we are at the point at which the leadership and his leadership has been all about uh, democratising the party. He is quite clearly at this point uh, opposing the will of the overwhelming majority of Labour members What party, what leadership, what base 
Absolutely. And um, I, I was talking to a quite well-established uh, Italian author, former uh, deputy, uh, uh, rather a senator of the Democratic Party, Carofilio, great writer, great observer of the British scene. He was over there, great observer of Five Star Movement. And what is going on with Corbyn and the Corbynites is remarkably similar to what is happening in Italy. It is not nearly as this base, the group, the five... 100,000 members are not nearly as united as we have been led to believe. And you're absolutely right. The demographics are very, very interesting. Below 27, 28, I would say, they are of a completely different outlook and aspiration. They don't have hang-ups about Europe because they go to Europe a lot. It's not that they're Euro card. It's actually almost like going to... It, it's easy they for think most of them themselves, go, in fact, as European. Yeah, well, it, is I, a, it is a question of identity. Uh, uh, absolutely. And curiously, uh, this is where in, in, in outlook and generation, Corbyn is much nearer Trump. Uh, he's, he's an Englishman. and he, he is not au fait with these things because one of the things that has happened is also they're multilingual. The, 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 these younger people, more and more, they're used to dealing in foreign languages and more and more of their very good pals in Europe speak excellent and wonderful English and, 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 and shame us. And it's a huge change. This is where I think that the little England, I'm answering your question now, <laughs> the little England element in either party, whether it's Simon Heffer of the Daily Telegraph or um, Jacob Rees-Mogg, I nearly said his father, William, or the, the hardline trade unionists like McCluskey, they are yesterday's people. And I think that, uh, but that's why I think, um, it's a bit like Mrs. Thatcher once said of herself, I think this one's going to go on and on and on and on because it's not going to be settled in the next six months. Well, just just finally on this before we move on, I noticed yesterday that uh, Giva Hofstadt uh, tweeted that he, as he was leaving Downing Street that he'd had an open and honest exchange with Theresa May, so we'll be at war by Christmas. Uh, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Miller, along with Quentin Peel and Robert Fox. Coming up next, how frightened should Google be of Jeff Sessions? Tired of seeing the same few tedious tourist haunts? Well, the Monocle Travel Guide series has stopped off in 30-plus cities and counting in order to dispense advice on travelling like a local. From the finest spot in which to sip a cocktail with a contact, work up a sweat, or take a dip, our comprehensive travel guide series are packed with tips, essays, and tidbits for getting the very best from your destination. Monocle's Travel Guide series is published by Gestalten. We've recently added Mexico City and Zurich, Basel, and Geneva to the library, with Athens and Helsinki coming soon, and guides to Chicago and Hamburg following early next year. The Monocle Travel Guide series. Cities are fun. Let's explore. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Robert Fox and Quentin Peel. Now, it's a common place of human history that technological innovation outruns efforts to regulate it. The dominance of modern communications and discourse by upstart tech giants is no different. However, momentum towards official oversight of search engines and social media platforms has coincided with a US administration rooted in paranoia and vengeance. One of Donald Trump's amply stocked menagerie of bets noir is the fantastical conviction that Google and Facebook and so forth are conspiring to suppress perspectives sympathetic to him. Accordingly, Attorney General Jeff Sessions is meeting today with the Attorneys General of US states to discuss opening a federal investigation into the power of tech giants. Um, Robert, if this were any other administration, would we be saying that this is long overdue and good luck to them? 
No, I think, but I think it's it's a bit a bit like following the yellow brick road. It's a, it's it's an exercise in fantasy, at a different level, looking into the communication business, and it was about a different matter, a criminal matter potentially. We had the phone hacking. Inquire, uh, uh, scandal in Britain, which led to an inquiry into the news business, which got absolutely nowhere. And this was terrestrial news, newspapers, broadcast news, and the poor old judiciary, I would say, very condescendingly, just couldn't get their heads around it. This is the problem. As you said in your introduction, it is moving so fast away from them. How are you going to regulate? Who are the personnel? Who are the coders? Who are the people you're going to have to build up? You'd have to build up an army to monitor Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, and WhatsApp alone. It just can't be done. Unless, of course, we're going to have um, a new generation of killer robots to do it. Um, it's where I think that, 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 again, they've been defeated by language. They're just, just not up with it. But Trump and people like him will go on and on about Facebook and Google, and they are an evil that we, that we have to live, live with. What is more interesting are the people that set up a lot of these programs who are now leaving and are now sort of practically heading for the woods like... Um, Thoreau and Walden Pond, because a lot of people are getting very, very scared about about what it is doing to language communication and social intercourse and governance. Uh, Quentin, is it wrong to think about these tech giants in the way that we've thought of previous monopolies? They might well argue that they are, well, they're vulnerable in a way and quite suddenly vulnerable in a way that I guess a, a bricks and mortar corporation might not be. It, you don't have to remember too far back to remember, you know, when Yahoo was the dominant search engine and 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 MySpace owned social networking. I think that um, they are actually in some danger. We, we've seen it in Europe because the Europeans, after all, have slapped a five billion dollar fine enough. on Google. Um, that, so in fact, the Europeans are way ahead of the Americans on this. And then look at that enormous tax bill that Apple has had to put, was it 12 billion euros or dollars aside for a tax bill in Ireland because it's been basically fiddling its taxes. And now I see the Germans, the German cartel office, is promising to go after Facebook. Now, all of these tech giants have actually got They've really blotted their copybooks in different ways, but it's partly the data security thing. That's very much Facebook. And with Google, it was actually putting its software all over the place so you you couldn't get away from it. And when you've got Google, 89% of all internet searches in the United States are on Google. And it's you know, and then Facebook has an enormous dominance of the advertising market. And I think that the ordinary voter particularly in Europe, there it's the tax issue. They want to get them to pay mm. proper taxes. And so I think that there's going to be political pressure. Now, ironically, in America, of course, it does seem to be very personal to Donald Trump. And the one you haven't mentioned who I think he hates the most probably is Jeff Bezos yes. of Amazon. Yeah, of course. Because, of course, he's the, bought the, the Washington, Washington Post, Post yeah. which hammers Donald Trump all the time. So if there's anybody he's going to go for, I suspect it's Jeff Bezos. Uh, Robert, do you think are are they basically too powerful and are they too unaccountable to tech giants? On information and big data, of course, we had the warning with Edward Snowden, and I, I think it's very in- interesting to look at the general reaction to Ed- Edward Snowden. Um, it's very interesting with the anniversary books coming out on Vietnam. 
that now um, Daniel Ellsberg, who brought probably was the subject of the most famous uh, First Amendment case in the history of the United States, now regarded generally as a hero for publishing the Pentagon Which was Papers. far from a unanimous opinion a at the time. time. But similarly, there was a similar reaction, and I went through the... I was involved in one or two things very close to as a consultant, not just as a journalist, at the time of Snowden with the interface between information and security and so on. And the mandarins just couldn't see it. And I said, look, it's just not a fad that the young people, the PhD students alone, and the, the, the school kids, the grade school kids who could really think about it, see him as a hero, because this is just too powerful, too overwhelming. And um, that generation, it's the millennial generation, people coming into the millennial generation, you know, around the Blair generation, that didn't really grip this one. I think it is a very powerful feel, uh, 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 feeling, and a lot will come. There are a lot of other things. It's not only taxes, it's general behaviour and governance, which is a thing that we're seeing more and more is going to get Apple. Think of Foxconn and the, the, the conditions in which a lot of these, just the shells, the kit of, 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 of a lot of Apple material are prepared in China, in these, in the, in these labour uh, 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 conurbations where, where, where they're at dirt wages and sometimes even less. It's all coming in. Um, and they thought that, that it would go away, but I think it's actually that you could weaponize their, their very own weapons against them, as it were, because the conversation is very strong against this now. Okay, well, finally tonight, Michael Kors' $2.1 billion takeover of Versace is of obvious interest to both tonight's guests, neither of whom ever wear anything else. It is also, however, a reminder of the apparent decline of the family-slash-dynasty model of business. This decline is a thing, but is it a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, Quentin, when you think of the surviving dynastic businesses, and I guess it's things like Walmart and, and Lego, are they, uh, do we think of them as anachronisms? I don't think so. I think we're going to keep seeing these things coming back. But I do think that the family business, on the whole, three generations is the usual lifespan of these things. You know, the first one creates it, the second generation holds Uh, it, and the third generation blows it. And that's pretty common, I think, all round. You you could apply that trajectory to the Trump family pretty accurately, (laughs) I think. It's a very strong proclivity with, 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 with Italian family and a lot of the fashion has been done by families. But look at the great Agnelli family and Fiat, and they've really sort of scattered to the winds um, with the third generation. But the family ethos was um, uh, kept going by an extraordinary Italo-Canadian, Sergio Marchione, who has just died at the wrong time. And, you know, the whole family concept of uh, Fiat and Fiat Chrysler, as it became, has completely gone. But let's speak in praise of people like um, uh, Versace. Um, I, when I was doing my Mediterranean book, Living in Milan, I was very lucky to go to the atelier of um, Giorgio Armani, very, very charming man. And he said, yes, it was families that have done this. And families did a brilliant thing because Italy really was bitten by terrible austerity after the war because it was barely industrialized in most parts. It was bombed out. of it, What it had of industry was largely bombed out of existence. And then these wonderful families grew up, like Gucci, Versace is another one, and Missoni. And they produced these beautiful brands because they conquered Paris in a haute couture where they, were, they, they became the toast of the catway briefly. And then very, very smartly, they realized that as 
Armani put it to me, they had to build suits that really could be worn and work on the street and good for them. And the family I love particularly, and has had terrible tragedy with, with, with um, a key figure being killed and another died, is Missoni, which is absolutely more than just design. It's a work of art. And they've revived completely as a family business. So, you know, it does go in, 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 in some parts, but I'm with, with, with Quentin. It's very much a generational thing. I mean, you can see the tears of nostalgia. It brings back practically Vespos and uh, uh, Gina Lollabrigida and, and Audrey Hepburn with Clark Gable. I mean, it is pure nostalgia. You can't run fashion businesses like that. Now. I mean, but Quentin, can you still run any businesses as a family dynasty in that old fashion sense anyway there is of course a couple of famous media families the murdochs being the most obvious example but is is it possible to imagine that there will be another of their sort well the ones i know best are probably in germany the mittelstand in germany the mighty family companies and some of those you know i mean a company like robert bosch is still effectively it's a huge enterprise but it's still a family company and their great success is because they're a family company they're long-termist they're not the short-termists and the danger i think of which we've seen in our financial crises and so on is that actually everybody's so obsessed by the share price, they can't take a long-term view. Those, that's where the great strength of the German Mittelstand has been come through. And the most extraordinary has been the Rothschilds, and they've done it for nearly half a millennium. And they're still there. Yeah. Well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Quentin Peel and Robert Fox, thank you very much for joining us at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Ben Ryland, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Leah Fournier. A studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900, it's Monocle on Design. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. Thank you.